this episode of the Bible Study Magazine podcast, we are still talking about biblical literacy. And in particular, we are talking about the literary genres of scripture, poetry, narrative, epistle, apocalyptic, gospel, all the different kinds of writing that God in his good providence decided to include in the pages of the Bible. I talked to longtime Christian professor of literature, Leland Riken, an expert in literary genres, both in and outside the Bible, and I asked him for insight into these literary genres. How can I be a good reader of scripture, a sophisticated one, understanding and using the rules of these genres? After that, I brought some Faith Life friends into the studio to talk about Dr. Riken's comments, and I was especially thankful to have a bona fide English literature maven among them, my sometime editor, Abby Stocker, who had some good insights for us. Both conversations with all guests were instructive and helpful for me personally, and I pray they will be the same for you. The Bible Study Magazine podcast is brought to you by Bible Study Magazine delivering tools and methods for Bible study from respected scholars and church leaders. Right now, start a free trial. Get six months of fresh insights on achieving greater Bible literacy. Visit BibleStudyMagazine.com slash trial today. Dr. Leland Riken, it's a real pleasure to have you on the Bible Study Magazine podcast, and I want to jump right in. Don't want to waste any time asking you to provide your gifts to the church by answering questions about literary genre. The first uh, season of the Bible Study Magazine podcast is about biblical literacy. First, though, I do want you to share your uh, credentials so that people understand the angle you're coming from when we talk about this topic of literary genre, what do you teach? What's your training in? Well, as I sometimes say, I am a mere academician. I am ready to begin my 52nd year of teaching in the English department at Wheaton College in Illinois. I did officially retire in 2012, but I have continued to teach. Um, I came to specialize pretty early in the Bible as literature. That is the field for which I am best known. Um, So I am a literary scholar. I come to the Bible with that vantage point. Uh, That's who I am. Let's set aside biblical genres for a moment and talk about literary genres more generally. What is a literary genre? I want to begin by saying it is a somewhat amorphous or fluid concept, and it is such because it overlaps with some other categories. The standard definition of genre is literary type or kind. I think a good synonym is it's a category of writing, like story or poem. I just wanted to tuck in one additional idea. We define genre partly in terms of literary form. For example, a poem is identified by the language it uses, imagery and figures of speech. But sometimes we identify genre also on the basis of content. So that, for example, a nature poem is specifically a nature poem because of its subject matter, namely nature. 
What when you look at the Bible, what are the major literary genres that you see in its pages? The main genres of the Bible are the same as the main genres in literature, and they are poetry and narrative or story. Now, under each of those, with the Bible, for example, we have dozens of additional subgenres, as I call them, but the two big ones are poetry and story. How do you fit the Pauline letters, for example, then? Would one of them be a subgenre of narrative, for example, or or? Would they not count as a separate genre? No, it's a separate genre. And uh, I was just naming the two big ones. There are many independent ones on the same level of being genres in their own uh, right. An epistle is a letter. It is not a subcategory of uh, narrative or poetry. So we have people listening to the podcast who both want to be biblically literate themselves and want to help others be biblically literate, whether they're children or people they pastor or influence. Can someone be biblically literate without understanding the differences among these biblical literary genres you're naming? My answer is yes, because I define literate as being familiar with. A person can be thoroughly familiar with the Bible and therefore literate but be unsophisticated and not know about the rules of analysis. I would say, however, that that level of literacy, meaning only familiarity, does not equip a person to analyze the Bible well, to understand it adequately, and above all, not to preach it or teach it correctly. We've all had our experiences realizing we've been misunderstanding something in the Bible. And I wonder, you talk about an unsophisticated appreciation for the Bible's literary genres. Can you think of a funny or maybe sad example of someone, maybe yourself in, your, in the distant past, who misunderstood a biblical passage because he or she mistook the genre? This is mainly a sad event, Mark, but I will uh, share with you that long ago, a religious journal of a somewhat cynical nature called the Wittenberg Door carried a cartoon of a literal interpretation of the woman in Song of Solomon. So there she was with eyes like doves, uh, breasts like fawns, a neck like a tower. So that's a humorous example. I would say that the most vexing to me is not misapplication of an incorrect generic label, but not calling into play the right generic label. That is such a missed opportunity, and it is cutting against the grain and just not doing the right thing with the Bible. Genre is very important. Um, not bringing it into play, sins of omission, are just as damaging as applying the wrong generic label. Genres are things that I think any Bible reader who's grown up certainly within a church community and just observed how the Bible is used – Genres are something that those Bible readers intuitively understand at some level, even if it's an unsophisticated one. Um, and as readers, more generally, we grasp, you know, once a story starts with once upon a time, that's a genre clue. I wonder in your study of literature, kind of uh, backing back out of biblical literary genres again, are genres natural kinds, that is things that are baked into creation by God, or are they human creations, or, or are they both? Well, I'm going to come down on the side of there being human creations. That is, someone wrote the first praise psalm, the first lament psalm, and so forth. I can see why they seem like 
part of the created order. Once a genre gets established, it just is a presence that is imitated by other writers. So it can seem to be natural in creation, but that's a bit misleading, I think. Someone came up with the first narrative, for example. And that's an interesting answer. I'm tempted to say that narrative in particular seems like something that just has to exist. I mean, how can you have a relationship with someone without telling a story? Well, I agree with that. And uh, maybe that slightly qualifies what I just said. I agree that the reason narrative seems part of the created order is that we live in a narrative world. It consists of the same ingredients that a story does, plot, setting, and characters. However, a story is more than that. It is a carefully ordered sequence of events. It has a beginning, middle, and end. Well, how many events in life are self-contained like that? Right. A story has a central plot conflict moving to resolution. Is that the normal order of events? So I think... Um, there is something that makes stories seem part of God's creation, and at some level genuinely is. Even there, though, a storyteller has molded the ingredients of real life to produce something new. Just as in the Bible, you know, there are many, many things that happened in Abraham's life that we have no idea about. In fact, most things that ever happened to him, we don't know about. Same thing goes with Jesus. You know, the end of John says that, you know, if we wrote all the things that happened in Jesus' life, all the things they did, you know, the the world couldn't contain all the scrolls. So there is a principle of selection going on there by these inspired historians telling us these narratives. That I find this very interesting. Okay, I, I got another question for you. I once read a very smart Christian writer who nonetheless said something about biblical literary genres that I thought went too far. Uh, He happened to be a literature professor like yourself, and he was trying to accord honor to the Bible. And I understand his impulse, but he said that the biblical genres and other literary features of the Bible are aesthetically normative. That is, you know, the Bible, by virtue of being inspired by God, is the most beautiful book possible, just by definition. How do you respond to that? I would choose another word besides normative. I often claim that the Bible is prototypical or elemental in the sense of being the best example by which to illustrate some literary genre. For example, when I introduce early in a course how stories work, I just gravitate to the story of Cain in Genesis 4. It just illustrates the principles of narrative so well. Or if I want to teach a metaphor, Psalm 23 is the best text by which to do it. I don't thereby think, however, that the Bible is necessarily always the best example of this or that literary quality. I agree with you and on in every respect. It is also a rich way to teach even English, to reach into the Bible for examples of metaphor, simile, all the other literary devices, and certainly of the literary genres. Now, one time, though, when I was a young undergraduate student, I got confused by one of my teacher's statements about genre. He was an Old Testament professor, and he wrote an article in which he said, and I'm paraphrasing here, but I think I'm getting some of the same words he used. He said that the Proverbs as a genre are not 
ironclad statements of what is universally true, but wise statements about what is generally true. And this this kind of sounded liberal to 18-year-old me, and I went and asked him about it very respectfully, and I wonder if you would agree with what he said. How would you answer someone like 18-year-old me who was troubled by that statement? Well, first of all, I don't like the condescending attitude toward Proverbs that some biblical scholars take. A very standard book on the on the uh, subject of the Bible calls Proverbs, quote, catchy little couplets. Well, goodness, who's going to base a life on catchy little couplets? Having said that, um, Proverbs, like other genres, have their own rules for interpretation. And I agree with your professor uh, in the following way. Proverbs are human observations into the repeatable situations of life. So what are we going to do about the exceptions? We are not going to make them dominant in the situation. A general principle is what we base our lives on. If there is rain, if there's thunder and lightning in the distance, I don't go out and stoke up the grill, even though occasionally there is the exception that it does not produce a rainstorm. Uh, We live in a somewhat perverse age that likes to seize upon the exception and then turn it into the dominant element. I definitely do not want to do that. Nonetheless, I think that these observations into the repeatable situations of life do have exceptions. I think that's a profound answer given with a wonderful illustration there about the thunderstorm. I wonder if you've heard people use Proverbs 26, 4, and 5 as a way of answering that question. I'll quote the ESV here, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. And then verse five, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. And the the point that I've often heard people make, such as D.A. Carson from these two verses, is that Proverbs like is literarily self-aware. You know, the writer here, in this case Solomon, inspired by God, uh, knows that he is giving a wise statement about what is generally true and then following up with another wise statement about what is generally true um, rather than giving this ironclad statement of what is universally true. Sometimes you answer a fool. Sometimes you don't answer a fool. Yes, and I want to add a, a, a word into the mix that literary scholars love, namely ambiguity, and that the general population might be uneasy with. Uh, ambiguity in the sense of multiple meaning. Um, or in the sense of preserving a sense of the mystery of real life is a literary virtue. Um, So that I think the juxtaposition of those two proverbs is there to uh, embody a principle of life, namely, um, that there's a certain ambiguity about dealing with a fool. Yeah, now I'm a Christian. I base my life on the Bible. I believe in the divine inspiration and authority of the Bible over all of my life. Uh, And yet I find it helpful to have literary labels like ambiguity and metaphor when I approach scripture, lest I make it say more than God actually intended to say. I also see richness there when, for example, you've got a simple statement like, God is my rock. It doesn't actually specify the points of similarity between God and rocks that you're supposed to draw, but there's room for your imagination. There's a richness there, uh, a cause for reflection. You've been listening to Leland Riken. You know he knows what he's talking about when it comes to literary genre. You also know that a podcast is not capable of a deep dive. That's what books are for. His books, 
Logos has a whole collection of books from Riken on reading the Bible as literature. There are six volumes, volumes focusing on narrative, poetry, epistles, gospels, wisdom literature, and apocalyptic literature, like Daniel and Revelation. Uh, one of the most enlightening things that ever happened to my own Bible study was connecting what I was learning in English class about genre and literary devices and interpretation with my reading of the Bible. Riken does this over and over again, coming as he does from an English literature background. Check out Leland Riken's Reading the Bible as Literature collection at Logos.com. Now, I, I want to move on for a question that's kind of going for the jugular on a controversial question. I want to ask you what maybe is the top biblical literary genre question there is, but I'm going to put a different spin on it and give me just a minute to do a lead up if you would, Dr. Riken. Uh, I've been really reflecting on a question that Jesus asks five times in the Gospels in separate situations, have you not read? He appears to hold people, particularly the Pharisees, morally responsible for how they interpret Scripture in all of these cases. Now, Christians from whose writings I have benefited have disagreements about the interpretation, in particular, of Genesis 1 through 11. And a lot of those questions focus on the genre. Some interpreters insist that the genre there in those chapters is straight-up historical reportage. Others insist equally uh, vehemently that the genre is different, that Genesis 1 and 2 in particular are a literary framework, and that the original readers who would have been familiar, more familiar perhaps than we are with the genres in use in their day, they, they say that they would never have read it as a straightforward history. So, my question is actually not which of these two broad positions you take, but what moral responsibility do you think people bear for taking the wrong one, whichever it is? It certainly impresses upon us the importance of studying the Bible carefully. It also inclines us to hold our opinion with a certain humility, it seems to me, and charity toward people with whom we might disagree in regard to an interpretation. Uh, what I mainly come away from your question feeling is that God has entrusted to us the responsibility to reach a correct understanding of the Bible. So this requires study on our part. Uh, we have to do our work. The fact that we disagree with others is a result of the fall. The fall was a fall from truth as well as from moral innocence, and that's sobering. It's not the situation we most enjoy, but it's where we are living. Um, so I would say I, I come away thinking I need to be very serious about and not quick to reach decisions about the Bible um, and to be charitable toward people that otherwise I might uh, not be charitable toward in their interpretation. But nonetheless, although, of course, because of the fall— you know, it, well, let's put it this way. Even before the fall, we were finite as a race. Adam and Eve didn't have perfect and full and exhaustive understanding and knowledge of all things. We maintain that finiteness and we've added to it a fallenness. So, But because of both of those things, we can get the Bible wrong. We can misunderstand literary genres. And yet, by your saying that God expects us to read rightly, and yes, by using all the tools we have, of course, by appealing to the Holy Spirit for illumination, uh, nonetheless, you're um, uh, 
implicitly agreeing, I suppose, with part of my question that, yes, there is a moral responsibility. Maybe in this podcast, it's uh, too deep to explore with regard to this particular passage of Scripture, what is the moral responsibility? But yes, we do have a responsibility to read rightly. Did I understand you accurately? Yes, and I just suddenly remembered a, a principle articulated in a book by a somewhat liberal scholar. He, he spoke of the Bible being based on the premise of foolproof composition, by which he meant, no matter what disagreements about the details, we and biblical scholars might come, we can't misread the main message of the Bible. In that sense, the Bible is a foolproof book. The way of salvation in Christ, we can't miss that. Yeah, classically, that's been called perspicuity or the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture. On those central items, man's salvation, creation, fall, redemption— the Bible speaks with utter clarity, and yet the Bible itself tells us, as Peter tells us, that some things that Paul wrote are, in the King James words, hard to be understood. And in fact, I have to sneak one question in here. Have you have you not done some work in William Shakespeare? I have. Okay. My own work in the last couple of years, a lot of it has been focused on the King James Version. I wrote a book called Authorized, The Use and Misuse of the King James Bible, in which I focus on the ways in which changes in the last four to 500 years of English, because the King James is a lot based on Tyndall, which is 500 years old, not 400, changes uh, in English have made it difficult and in places impossible for readers to fully understand everything the King James Version is saying. Now, I don't, I'm not a hater. I love the King James. It's still in my heart and in my head. But um, I have also, let's bring in something else here. I've listened to, I've watched, I don't know, a good 20 Shakespearean plays in my lifetime, enjoyed them all. But I've wondered from your perspective as a, a literature professor who's dug into Shakespeare and presumably the King James Bible, would you say that the English, as English, of Shakespeare is more or less difficult than the English as English of the King James Version. They come from the same era. What would you say? I would say Shakespeare is more difficult. What leads you to say that? What elements of his writing are more difficult? Shakespeare was the greatest imagination that we have observed, and he just states things so metaphorically and literarily that it just takes us beyond our ordinary ability to interpret language. Um He's more difficult. That's my answer. Yeah, for what it's worth, I completely agree with you. I just have wanted to check with people who've dug further into Shakespeare than I have. Uh, in my opinion, genre is just one of many literary Zoom levels that every Bible reader must and will use when they read anything, even and especially the Bible. Um, you can zoom out from genre to talk about the overall story of the Bible. You can zoom in at a tighter level, like with a magnifying glass, to look at individual literary devices. I wonder if you could tell me the story of when you first began to see what you earlier described as really your life's calling. From the beginning of my teaching career, I always had an opening lecture in my literature courses on the traits of literature. What a revelation it was to me when I opened up a book entitled Kinds of Literature, an Introduction to Genres, and read the title of the first chapter, namely, Literature as a Genre. Well, that's the premise on which I had always operated. Literature itself, en masse, all of the genres together have certain common traits. Literature itself is a genre. When did I come to my... Uh, <clears throat> awareness that the Bible is a very literary book. I would say during my graduate school years at the University of Oregon, arch nemesis of Washington, I understand, 
Um, at the end of my years there, uh, the minister had to be away of a Sunday, so he entrusted to me the adult Sunday school class. Uh, for reasons other that I don't fully know, I worked up a literary explication of Psalm 23. Um, that was the beginning of my lifelong interest in the Bible as literature, and I would say in the integration of literature and the Christian faith. It was so seminal. It's as though everything in my life up to that point had just prepared me, my literary education and my Christian life, to apply literary categories to the Bible. So I look back with great fondness on a very humble assignment of teaching an adult Sunday school class. That's wonderful. I, I love to think back on the ways in which the Lord has mercifully opened my eyes. Sometimes it was a chance circumstance, apparently. Sometimes it was sitting in a lecture hall. Sometimes it was hard won over many years, and I finally come to understand something. The Lord is gracious to Bible readers, and he's been gracious to you and gracious to the church by giving you gifts that have helped us read the Bible better, including in this interview in the Bible Study Magazine podcast. And Dr. Reichert, I'd like to thank you again for your time. Thank you. In the studio with me here at the headquarters of Faith Life in Bellingham, Washington, I have Kaylee Joyce. Quick, tell us what you do, Kaylee. Well, I am the communications coordinator for the Faith Life original content team, as well as the producer of the Bible Study Magazine podcast. Great. And Abigail Stucker, what do you do, Abby? I am an editor at Luxem Press, which is a publishing house that uh, Faith Life started. And with me, my former close co-worker and still general co-worker from another part of the company, Adam Boris. Tell us what you do, Adam. Uh, yes, well, I'm the product manager for the Logos Bible Software desktop application. And if your listeners recognize my voice at all, it's because you and I used to work together as part of the Logos Pro team, uh, creating training videos for the for the desktop application. That's right. Back in the olden days, that was a that was a great team. I loved working on that team. And this is a good team right here to talk about literary genres because we have here Bible students who've been reading the Bible. I believe I know your stories well enough to say your entire lives. All of us have. And I think there were times when we were less sophisticated readers and I I think we all hope we've we're in the more sophisticated category by now. So let me ask a couple of questions here. Riken named poetry, narrative, and story as the main three genres. And he also mentioned there are dozens of additional subgenres. Talk to me about your history as a Bible reader. When did you start to realize that Revelation was different from Psalms, which was different from Genesis, which was different from the Gospels? When did you start seeing these genres? That's a great question. I think... I think that for me, it was probably uh, when I was 21, I did a year-long Bible course, and it's it was an inductive study of the Bible where <clears throat> it was, yeah, very much based on, well, the principle that they based it on is look, look, look. <laughs> so the whole year, we spent an entire year just reading through scripture um, five times through the Bible. Um, and I think it was during that school, it, we had a lot of teaching during that year on how to just observe those different genres and yeah, how to pay attention to them, how to recognize them. And that made a huge difference for me. Thank you, Kaylee. Uh, Abby, you had a thoughtful like English major look on your face. <laughs> I know you got an answer to this question. When did you start seeing the different genres? 
I don't know that there was a particular moment or season for me, um, which I guess is kind of funny because because um, I remember um, reading poetry, you know, all growing up, for instance. So the idea that there was poetry in the Bible wasn't necessarily a surprising one. But I do remember in college, I went to a, a Christian liberal arts school. We had to take a number of Bible courses alongside English or business or whatever you were studying. And um, I do remember learning about the book of Revelation and learning about apocalyptic literature as a genre. Um, I'm not sure exactly where Dr. Reichen would kind of how he would relate that to the other genres, but I remember that being a real um, kind of epiphany for me to realize, oh, like this is this is a particular genre. There's particular uh, things about it that are, you know, kind of similar to other apocalyptic literature in the Old Testament and all the metaphors and things. It's not um, necessarily a literal account of something, but uses a lot of rich literary techniques to describe the story. That's helpful, Abigail. And I had a similar experience growing up and I probably didn't read as much poetry. That's why I didn't become an English major, but my dad was an English major and he taught me Englishy kind of stuff for which I'm still grateful as a writer to this day. Adam, I wonder your story as a Bible reader. When did you start to see that there are different kinds of literature in scripture? Mm -hmm. You know, as you kind of alluded to in the interview with Dr. Riken, there's a certain, uh, intuitive sense that, you know, everyone who reads the Bible consistently kind of understands that there are some passages like Revelation and poetry that are symbolic uh, and others that are more straightforward and historical. And um, so I think I kind of grew grew up with that, but it wasn't until I was an adult uh, that I started to realize um, that these there were intentional choices uh, made by the biblical authors and also that some of those genres um, – differ from the way that we think of them now, like the historical genre for biblical authors means something different from the what we think of as history now. The rules for interpreting genres, uh, Dr. Riken talked about them um, having their own rules for interpretation. He was talking about the Proverbs in that case. I wonder, how do we discover these rules? I guess from um, from the study of English literature that I've done, one way to do that seems to be to just read, read lots of literature in that genre from that time period. Um, I don't know, I'm thinking about, you know, poetry from, say, even 200 years ago, right? And the more you read of it, the more you realize, oh, this is a metaphor that lots of people are using for nature. Or, you know, you start to pick up on these little, like, social cues and things that would have been from that time period. Um, and... Yeah, so I guess that's one aspect of it. Just just familiarizing ourselves, like you were saying, becoming biblically literate will help us um, if we're pretty intentional about that. Yeah, I mean, of course, every evangelical Christian is going to go back to the evangelical sacrament, which is read the Bible, pray every day, and you will grow, grow, grow. You know, reading the Bible is one of the uh, the major tools that we have for uh, growing in our faith. And if we are going to know the rules, it's likely going to come first through experiencing them as they actually happen in the Bible and then learning labels for them. Well, I'm, I'm glad you asked this question because this is exactly the question that I wanted to ask. <laughs> um, like I'd, I've been exposed to the Bible my entire life. I've in the last, um, well, my, my adult life have been, have been exposed to this idea of genre and, and I still, uh, 
I mean, I mean, I'm a lay person and I still uh, very much struggle with this idea of, well, how do I recognize a genre or a subgenre and, and what are the rules that I apply towards uh, interpretation in that context? I mean, are there simple derivable rules that you can apply or is it simply a matter of familiarity and, and then the intuition that comes with that? Boy, now you're asking me questions and <clears throat> that wasn't on the contract. <laughs> This is tough because I the word rules makes it sound like it's both simple and sort of discreet, like really here's this objective list. And yet I don't know that I've ever really seen people write out those quote unquote rules. Um, there is it, I have to I have to retreat to a more ambiguous word like sensibility. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think and I do think it it, it starts out by being intuitive. Okay, but if, if you want to get concrete with it, you can go to something like the Psalms and you can observe that the kinds of things that the psalmists talk about, the kinds of themes that come up, um, the kinds of metaphors that they make, as Abby talked about, are simply different than the structure of, say, the epistles. And you, I think, again intuitively and then later learning labels are, are able to see it even better, you see that the kind of analysis we give to an epistle where we're seeing where is Paul going with this? What is his argument? How does this phrase relate logically to the last one? Just that doesn't yield as much fruit when you apply it to the Psalms or to narrative. There's still an argument going on. We won't deny that. But the way that argument is presented is different. You have a different sensibility that you bring to the text. And if you want to call that a rule, I think that's helpful because we have to realize that that does mean, yeah, you you can't and shouldn't take the approach from the epistles and bring it back into the Psalms. In that sense, it's a rule. Hmm, yeah. What you're saying about the rules, um, it's making me think about how useful it was for me when I came to recognize some of the, I don't know, the basic genre features, I guess, of the New Testament epistles. Uh, I'd been reading the epistles my whole life, and I'd even been reading them as letters. And, you know, I don't think I had any particular trouble reading them as letters and understanding them as letters. But when I when I learned more about the forms and the structures that we can and should expect in first century Greco-Roman letters. Um, and I will be honest here and admit that I don't remember the, the Latin terms for those uh, features that I'm mentioning. Uh, but when I came to recognize that those exist and, and came to recognize them in the letters, something amazing happened for me. Uh, and that is that I was suddenly able to remember the flow and the content of of what I had read more clearly. I could remember what I'd read. Uh, And that for me is a huge benefit of recognizing some of those rules, if we want to call them that. Uh, I will say though, that while those literary forms and structures are extremely helpful in Bible study, I also appreciate Dr. Riken acknowledging that genre itself is somewhat of an amorphous concept. Because some of the point of genres is that then people can break them to interesting effect, right? Or you might be kind of invoking a certain genre, but in a way that kind of subverts what the genre traditionally does, right? Like this is one of the fun things about literature, but introduces ambiguity. Hmm. So I think of Jesus when he gives the story of the rich man and Lazarus, and there's this kind of ongoing debate that I've heard over the years as to whether this is a parable or not. And a lot of it has the structure of parable, 
but he names Lazarus, which he never does in any other parable. So the question is, is Jesus playing with the parable genre by giving Lazarus a name that has a very particular theological meaning? Because yes, in Hebrew it does. Or is this not a parable? And that is a question that you have to answer if you're going to interpret this accurately. And of all the literarily gifted people in the world, I mean, Jesus is at the top, right? I was just listening to the Gospel of Luke this morning, and I was thinking some of the things that Jesus says are really difficult. He says, I saw Satan falling from heaven like lightning, and he gives no more no more details like, oh, when did you see this? Was this, you know, before creation? Was this just now? Um, he is able to put some difficult stuff out there that keeps your mind going for year after year. And that's one of the satisfactions of of Bible study. Can I just add on to the question too? Um, I mean, this is almost maybe too obvious, but I think too, another helpful thing, like a concrete thing that you can do to kind of start to understand these genres is to have a good study Bible that's um, trying to aim at explaining those in the notes or to consult a commentary. And I don't know that that's, at least for me, that hasn't been like a, I need to sit down and read this whole commentary on the Psalms because that's too much, right? It's, <laughs> that's a lot of information. But to, as you're reading the Bible, to stop and think about what you're reading and then say, hey, I wonder what this line is doing. I'm going to go look that up further and see if there's any comments on how that fits into the genre and how it. I think of genre as broader than that, as the, the, broader than a single line usually, mm. and and more of uh, what is the mindset that I should be in when I'm reading this? Mm. Um, is is it an analytical argument that's being presented as an epistle, uh, or is it more of a feeling um, that we that we often get in the psalm in, in the psalms or um, yeah or or these dramatic images that are presented in apocalyptic literature. Okay, maybe one way we can come through the back door toward these rules, because that's what we want. We, As Bible readers who are both seeking and trying to promote biblical literacy, we want to know how we should. You know, there's sort of a moral oughtness to our reading. If there are rules, we want to read rightly. A backdoor into those rules would be, can you think of a story from your own life or someone else's, we'll let that person remain nameless, in which you or they misunderstood the Bible precisely because you or they misunderstood the literary genre at play. And I have one I can start with. We talked about this in another episode, but I remember teaching on the Bible as one story. And there was a woman who had just taught vacation Bible school. It, this was a Christian school conference. Christian school teachers were coming to hear me and many others. In fact, very few came to hear me, but among the few who did, there was one who had this interesting experience. She said she just taught vacation Bible school and she had taught the story of um, Jonathan and his armor bearer and Jonathan and Saul, the passage where, and I'm going to forget the details, only Jonathan and his father, maybe the armor bearer, had swords. And in all the land of Israel, they're the only ones who had this very important weapon of that day. And she said the lesson that she derived from that for her VBS participants was be prepared. And I have a sense that that is a misunderstanding of literary genre 
there's also some theology that comes into play there, but I would say, and, and, and to her great credit, she very humbly raised this kind of realizing, yeah, I think I just violated all the stuff that you were just talking about and I want to get it right. Really great, humble attitude. But the genre of those stories is not such that the main point usually is skimmable right off the surface of the text like that. There's something that's going on that's usually bigger than that one story. And you know that because the Bible gives us a whole big long story, not just that one. We have to fit every story into that big story. There's an example. Anybody else have any come to your mind? Well, that actually relates to the example that I that I have in mind. Um, I, something that I think about a lot is actually how the book of Judges gets used in the world. <laughs> and <clears throat> I think the reason I think about it a lot is because I've seen it used fairly often in things like VBSs and Sunday schools and children's Bibles. Um, it's a very, it's a narrative book. It's uh, colorful. Exciting. <laughs> it's yeah. exciting. Wow. There's a lot of really, uh, yes, just amazing passages in that book. Um, and I, yeah, I've seen it used a lot over the years uh, in, in the way that you're describing it. So there's, you know, the story of Samson and God wants us to be strong like Samson and, you know, is kind of the principle that's drawn or I've seen at different times, um, things like that. And I, I agree. I think it's a misreading. It's kind of looking at this narrative, this, this book and saying, okay, how did the people act? That must be how God wants us to act. I, this book must be here to tell me what I should do. And these are the key characters. So I should be like them. Um, but the book is framed with, you know, by saying, and everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes and there was no king in Israel. And that, so it seems pretty dangerous, actually pretty terrifying to me to, to say, well, let's just look at these characters whose stories are described and try to be like them. Um, I don't, I don't know that I want to just emulate people who, who were not following proper authority and who were doing whatever they wanted. Um, and, and that's kind of where we go, I think, if we start to misapply that book. So it's almost like we're treating the judges, because these stories are so colorful, as fairy tales. And fairy tales often come with a very strongly encoded moral throughout. But the you were exactly right to say that throughout the book, there's this key moment, literarily, where the author is letting you in on something you probably should have already known, that, okay, this isn't really good, you know, don't be like Jephthah, this whole sacrificing your daughter thing, that's not good. Um, going after a Philistine woman like Samson did, not good. Um, but it, it is, it's a little sad for me to think about my own history as a Bible reader. And, you know, I, I didn't clue into all those things. You do come expecting that God's going to put up only good examples for me. We can have pauses here, but anybody else have any more examples? Well, I, this isn't an example maybe of totally misreading a book, but I think of the book of Deuteronomy, which is um, drawing on the genre of like a covenant or, you know, a treaty. And that's one where like when we look at the the genre and how it's structured and the little phrases and things that clue us into that genre at that time in history, um, when we know things about that genre, it clues us into how the Bible's version of that genre, or, you know, the way it uses that genre is totally unique in its time period, right? And how many of the treaties um, that other nations around Israel um, would have drawn up, you know, Deuteronomy presents God as so loving. And so, you know, he also is accountable to his people. And um, 
so genre can also, uh, yeah, just illuminate how the Bible is unique and, you know, just highlights more nuances of God's character, I think. That's one way that the Bible can play with genre like you talked about. It can actually use literary forms and genres from the surrounding culture to challenge that surrounding culture. I think that is an excellent example. And you get a free coffee afterwards, courtesy (laughs) of Faith Life. The Bible is prototypical or elemental. That's one thing that Dr. Riken said. And I've been trying to kind of puzzle that over in my mind because I still have this question. Does the Bible have to be the best example of every genre it uses? Does it have to, are we sort of obligated by believing that the Bible is God's word to believe that Psalms is the best poetry, Proverbs, you know, as a genre, you know, aesthetically speaking, um, this is the way it all ought to be done. In fact, I, I think if I remember right, that example I gave when I was talking to Dr. Riken seemed to suggest that the Bible exhausts the list of possible genres, like these are the ones we should use. And I I just don't feel like that's right. Um, I My eyes naturally go to our professional Englisher over here, Abigail. <clears throat> you English all the time as an so editor much Englishing. and writer and current seminary student. Um, how do you feel about that approach to aesthetic the aesthetic quality of literary genres in the Bible? Well, I guess two thoughts. Um, one, as far as whether the Bible exhausts the literary genres. Um, like Dr. Reagan said, there's there's kind of broad categories of genres, right? Or there's poetry and there's narrative. And um, and those are, those are things that are going to show up in the literature of any time period, I would think. Um, but certain genres also appear during different historical moments. And so... I don't know, like we don't see memes in the Bible, right? And people <laughs> argue that memes are a particular literary genre. And I mean, whether or not you take that argument seriously, I guess is one thing. But I I would hesitate to say that the Bible has to include all the literary genres because I guess it depends on whether we want to dialogue, how well we want to dialogue with the culture around us, which is a whole different topic. Um, but yeah, so... so one, history has something to do with genre and how it's used and what ones are popular. I mean, we don't write in apocalyptic literature as much in the same way anymore, right? So I tried to instance, write my wife a few apocalyptic love notes <laughs> back when we were dating and it just, you know, didn't work. Are you are you mixing genres then though? Apparently. Yes, does it work? I don't Yeah. <laughs> um Yeah, so so I would say that. Um I as far as whether the Bible has to be the best example of any particular genre. I guess that's one where I butt up against ambiguity and like, I mean, humans wrote human God is working through humans to write the Bible also. Right. Like, and we see that in the Bible stories of God working through people, even though they weren't perfect. And even though they weren't always, um, you know, a hundred percent, on top of their game. And so I guess I would hesitate to open the Bible up to that kind of uh, criticism by claiming that it's literarily perfect. So like if we could find a poem that's more beautiful, well, then there goes the Bible. Right, right. It's not really God's work. But on the flip side too, like literature has so much variety, which is one of the beautiful things about it, right? And so there's there's nothing wrong with 
someone preferring a different kind of literature over the literature of the Psalms, we can still agree that the Psalms are excellent poetry, right? Um, but opinion factors in as well. So, Adam, you have, you, you said you're a lay person, but I've been working with you for these several years now. And you do a great job, I think, if I may so say so myself, of kind of standing on the border between the um, you know academic biblical studies world and the world of lay Christians who are just trying to I do can their. I fake it pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> well, we do write your scripts um, for your videos there, but no, I've worked with you, and you're thoughtful. You're you care about careful Bible reading, um, and I wonder, and I I don't. Logos Bible software has come up quite a number of times in these discussions at our company because we actually like it and we use it for our own Bible study. What are some tools that are in Logos that can help us to uh, discern literary genre if we're uncertain? Yeah, there's a couple that are built right into the passage guide. There's one that's called literary typing, which is exactly what it sounds like. It is the type of literature that you're reading. Uh, I mean, you type your passage into the into the guide, and it'll it'll give you a clue. Hey, this is poetry, or this is whatever might be the case. Um, we've we've added some other genre tools in lately, uh, and then uniquely in Logos Eight in the workflows, it not only um, prompts you to use that tool, but but gives you some questions to consider. Like at this point in your study, now would be a good time to think about what kind of genre you're in, and how does that shape the way that you think about the passage? If there are rules for interpretation of given genres that are sort of baked into those genres. And I think there are, even if it is difficult to list them all out for each genre, then I want to align myself with the kinds of other Bible readers who have that same pursuit, who are saying that even when it comes to how I read these passages, I'm looking to the Bible to be my norm. And there is a degree to which, too, you can look at how the New Testament uses the Old Testament. That's a fruitful area of study to discern some of the rules for Bible interpretation. And Logos Bible Software has some good tools. Uh, the Bible Study Magazine is all the time talking about these things. Lexum Press is putting out stuff. There really is just an endless amount of good material that can help you understand how to interpret the Bible well. And we hope that our discussion here on the Bible Study Magazine podcast today has been helpful for our listeners. I'd like to thank Kaylee and Abby and my friend Adam for coming on the Bible Study Magazine podcast. Thanks, Mark. Yeah, thanks Glad for having us. Support for the Bible Study Magazine podcast comes from Logos Bible Software. Start a better, deeper Bible study experience with Logos 8 Fundamentals. Explore scripture more thoroughly than you ever imagined with Factbook, an encyclopedia of biblical places, people, and events. Workflows that walk you step-by-step -step through your Bible study. Notes and highlights, powerful and integrated note-taking capabilities for insights, ideas, and questions available in your Logos digital library, and much more. Learn more about Logos 8 Fundamentals and how it will transform your Bible study at logos.com slash fundamentals.
You've been listening to the Bible Study Magazine podcast, and I would like to thank our producer, Kaylee Joyce, and our audio technicians, Brandon Van Beek and Jack Underwood. The podcast outro genre is not found in scripture to my knowledge, but it is necessary to accurate interpretation of what you're hearing right now. In other words, what my inflection and the music cues and the fact that I'm now speaking alone after two content segments with guests means is goodbye. It was great while it lasted, and we hope you will come back next time.